Thanks, Bill. Appreciate you reading that. Um, so we are in a series on the gospel in everyday life, and uh, my name is Vince, one of the pastors here. And uh, my name is Vince, it's not my identity, but it is part of who I am. And today we're talking about identity. I was at uh, Creative Mornings, anybody know what Creative Mornings is? No, you should. You should know what Creative Mornings is, Chad Luke knows. It is a, it's basically like a free live TED Talk that happens once a month um, in San Diego, and there's lots of free food and lots of free creative people. So um, I was there a while back, and I'm, I'm sitting, I've got my name tag, we're all, you know, introducing ourselves to each other, getting connected, and uh, the young lady next to me, I asked her, um, I forget what her name was, but I asked her, uh, so what do you do? And she said, I'm a life enhancer. <laughs> a what? <laughs> I'm a life enhancer. I was like, oh. Well, is that, that, so that's what you do? She's like, well, it's, it's who I am. So, cool, what do you do for money? You know, she's like, well, I do a lot of different things for money, but I won't do anything that doesn't allow me to enhance people's lives. And I was, at this point, I'm realizing I'm the one with the problem <laughs> in this scenario, because I can't wrap my head around um, who she is, because what do we do in our society? When we ask somebody what they do, we're, we're trying to figure out who they are. Right? What's your name? And then the next question is always what? What do you do? That's that's somebody's identity. I'm a teacher. I'm a plumber. I'm a doctor. I'm a barista. I'm a whatever. And that's why this girl's response threw me off so much. Because what we tend to do is we define people by what they do, not by who they are. And I mean, have you ever asked somebody who are you? If somebody asked you today, who are you? How would you answer? Your name, maybe, and then what? That's a, that's a, that's a. I honestly don't have an answer for that question. I'm a pastor. I'm uh, male. I, you know, <laughs> what do you? How do you answer that question? Most of us don't really know who we are apart from what we do. And um, one of the things we say around here quite a bit is that we are human beings, not human doings. But a lot of us don't live like that's true, and it's a huge problem in our society. I was reading an article um, so a, a few years ago, Junior Seau passed away, um, 2012, and there were several studies conducted among NFL athletes um, about the, the reign of depression um, in retired NFL players. And uh, one of these studies put out by the American Academy of Neurology found that among older retired players from the NFL, about 40% have symptoms of depression, which is a rate nearly three times higher of that than the general population. It's crazy. So, it, you know, I've been every Sunday, I'm out there, I have the glory of a modern day gladiator. My entire life is geared toward this. I am an athlete, I am an NFL player, and now I'm retired, and what do I have? A few uh, months later, ESPN published an article. I posted it on the New City Facebook page here today. But Eddie George, who's a retired Titans running back, said this in the article. I had saved my money. I'd done well. I had businesses that had already started. But there was that void, that huge void of, man, what am I going to do tomorrow morning when I wake up? It was pretty much, who am I? I'm no longer an athlete. So yeah, you, you retire and you leave your identity back there on the field. The best days of your life, everything you were looking forward to your whole lives now in your rearview mirror, and you're like, what am I? Who am I? 
have a pastor buddy who just stepped down from pastoring. And we had a talk, a heart-to-heart recently last week, and he, he's struggling big time, he's suffering. And like, I don't know who I am. I mean, I know who I am, but I'm trying to wrap my mind around the fact that I'm not a pastor. Who are you when you stop doing what you do? I, I just, I want that question to linger in your heart for a second. Who are you really? Do you know who you are? Do you have a rock-solid identity? And if you do, is who you believe that you are actually in line with who God says you are? How much of your identity comes from your creator versus how much of your identity comes from the values of the culture around us or what other people say and what other people do or things that you've tried to be and things you've seen in other people that you've tried to emulate with your life. Oscar Wilde says it this way. He says, most people are actually other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions. Their lives are mimicry. Their passions are quotations. And if that's true, then most people passing us on the street in a day-to-day reality have no idea who they actually are. And they act like it. Check, yeah, I know who I am, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Rocky, you know? <laughs> like, you got that bravado, you, you're going to puff your chest out and act like you know. But there's this epidemic because we tend to define ourselves by what we do. And when human beings don't know who they are, or, or, or even if you do know who you are, but you're not actually living like it's true, we end up living very unstable shakable lives and what we need to know more than anything is who we are what god says about us something that's so true so foundational that nothing can shake it and this text so beautifully lays a foundation for our identity an identity that frees us from building our lives upon the the shifting sand of culture or other people's opinions so that we can allow God to speak into our lives. So three points this text does, three movements. It assumes a gospel foundation. This text explains our gospel identity, and this text empowers us to live a gospel-centered life. You guys ready? All right, so this text, first of all, assumes a gospel foundation. And here's what I mean by that. This, This text is a letter. Text is a letter written by Peter to the church. And when you read a letter, you know, the author, especially, you know, if you wrote a letter to somebody, you, you would, it, it's not chapters and verses when you write the letter. It starts with a, a greeting and it ends with a salutation, right? And you expect somebody to read it from beginning to end. So back in chapter one of first Peter, he's been talking about the gospel. And if we don't go back there, then we're going to miss what he's trying to say here because he's already laid a foundation. You guys tracking? So let me show you in, in chapter one. Look, at, if you have your Bibles open, you can track along with me. If not, I'm going to try to have some of the verses up here. There's also some Bibles down in the front. Don't feel awkward. Come grab one if you want one. Uh, verses 10 through 12, it says what about the gospel? It says that the gospel is the word of grace into which angels long to look. Think about that. The gospel is so powerful, so rich, that angels, the angelic beings in heaven, long to look into the gospel. And then look at verses 22 and 23, what it says the gospel is. It says, the gospel is the imperishable seed by which we are born again. In other words, the gospel is so powerful 
that it's it, in its life transforming ability that just to believe it, just to accept it, brings about such radical change. The Bible calls it a new birth. I know we're used to hearing that born again terminology, but think about what the Bible is getting at there. It's so transformative. It's like you're born all over again. The last couple of weeks, we've talked about the gospel quite a bit. And I, I won't rehash all of it, but just briefly, because you, you have to lay a gospel foundation for this sermon. It's like what Paul says in Romans, Romans chapter 1, 16, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say the gospel brings the power of God. He doesn't say the gospel will eventually lead you to the power of God. He says the gospel is the power of God. For what? For salvation. In other words, you, you don't just stop there. The gospel is not this thing that like changes your life and then you move past it into good works, but it's the power of God that keeps saving you from faith, that's your past, for faith, that's your future, by faith, that's your present. The gospel is this continuous reality in your life. So how we're being saved is by faith in the good news of, of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. It's, it's faith in the finished work of Christ. And that means that we don't ever move past the gospel. Never. You're never going to get past it. Or maybe we should say the gospel is always moving deeper and deeper in us and deeper into our lives. Tim Keller says the gospel is not the ABCs of our faith. It's the A to the Z and everything in between. Here's what I'm trying to say. Christianity is not about pulling up your bootstraps, kicking yourself in the butt and getting into gear and saying, I'm going to perform for God. I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to self-actualize. I'm going to be a better person tomorrow. The Christian life is not about what you do as much as it is about surrendering and trusting to what he's done for you in the gospel and letting that transform you from within. Here's an example of that. Um, you guys get to support Billy? If you haven't, make sure you go there before they tear it down. Because I hear that you guys hear about that whole thing. It got bought. Yeah. I'll let you wrestle with that later. Don't look it up yet. Okay. But but Seaport Village is one of these places you can go and you can see street performers still, which is fun, right? You got the you know the guy who's stacking the rocks, and you got the uh, the 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 sword swallowers and the jugglers and the people who breathe fire. It's amazing, right? Especially on a Saturday. There's a guy with a didgeridoo, and he's got the symbols on his knees and his arms, like a one man band. He's playing. I'm bad. I'm bad. You know it. And you're like pulling it off actually it sounds great like but th there's this guy who's a plate spinner some of you have heard me talk about him before you know he goes and he puts a stick down and he grabs a plate and he starts spinning that plate and you're like oh no he's gonna trip and fall and then he puts another stick down and he starts spinning that plate and then he goes back and spins it and he spins that one puts another stick down and goes and spins it you guys seen that the plate spinner and uh, pretty soon he's got like 15 plates going and giant crowd around him and all these kids are like you know giving him five dollars from their parents because <laughs> that's what happens that's how and trust me we've lost several five dollar bills to the plate spinner um 
But here's the thing about that. I, I realized one day watching that, I was like, this is a picture of our Christianity for so many of us. Right? We come to God, we realize it's by faith in what he's done, it's been amazing, it's this new life, and then somebody comes along and says, yeah, and if you're a good Christian, then you'll read your Bible. Right? And we're like, oh, yeah, I need to read my Bible. And it's not coming from this place of like, yeah, I just really want to hear from you. It's not relational. It's like, I need to read my Bible. And so, you, you know, you set your alarm clock and you start, you put your stick down, you start getting your Bible reading plate spinning. And then somebody else comes along and says, you need to pray every day. You know, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Somebody went to Sunday school, right? <laughs> so you get your Bible reading plate down. You get your, you get your prayer plate down and then you know the, the the missionaries come through from the jungles of borneo and their teeth are rotten out of their head and and they're like if you would give one dollar a month fifteen thousand people would come to god in the next year and you're like i just want you to have toothpicks all right so i'll give up a latte so you know you put your your missions giving plate down and you start spending pretty soon your christianity is like running back and forth wildly behind all the plates and trying to spin them and you're exhausted and you're out of breath and eventually what's the inevitable thing that happens? And then what? I'm no good. I'm just not a good enough Christian. We take it into our identity. We allow our performance to be the thing that defines our character. Right? It's uh, another way. It's amazing how like subtle it is too. It just creeps in. It's like uh, if you were on a ship and you're heading to Catalina Island and you're just one degree off right at the beginning when you're leaving port, you wouldn't really notice it. But, you know, a few hours later when you're supposed to be pulling into port, but you're 50 nautical miles out to sea and there's no land in sight and you see the storm clouds rolling in, you're like, whoa, what happened? How did we get here? And for so many of us, that's where we find ourselves today. The storms of life have rolled in, and we're like, where's this abundant life Jesus came bringing? We started off with the gospel, but we were just one degree off. It was like the gospel plus something. The gospel plus this. If I, if I would just do this, then I would earn God's favor. Then I would be a good Christian. And now we find ourselves in, in the middle of a storm with no land in sight. What happened? But when you realize that you're saved from first to last by the gospel when you realize it's not about what you do it's about what's been done for you when you realize it's not about your work it's about your faith and your trust in god as you believe the truth of the gospel then you'll take the gospel deeper and deeper into your heart and life and you'll begin to change and grow more and more you guys tracking isn't that what jesus says in john 8 jesus says they will know the truth and the truth will what set them free so many of us are bound up by lies and our lives are bound up by lies. And what we need more than anything is the truth of the gospel. If you want freedom today, if you want freedom from addictions and broken sin patterns in your life, if you want freedom from the negative emotions and the depressions and anxieties and worries, if you want freedom from the lies that have you bound, then it's by believing the truth of the gospel. Believing the truth that sets us free from the lies that, that bind us. Right belief leads to right behavior. And we see that over and over throughout Scripture. And we could go so many places. I just have one example to show you. Um, and that is First uh, John chapter 3. While you're turning there, I'll explain that oftentimes in the epistles, in the early letters to the church, there are 
uh, these, these desires, these imperative sentences about how we are called to live as the gospel church. Live this way, don't live this way. But you notice the letters never start out like that. The letters are always start out talking about this beautiful theology of who God is. And they get to the gospel of what God has done for us in Christ. Notice, they'll always start talking about who you are now as a result of this. This is your identity in Christ. And if you would believe it, you would start to live like this. Look at, look at 1 John 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he's pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away your sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. So no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Think about that. What's, what's John's main point here? John's main point is stop sinning. But what's John say? He doesn't just say, stop sinning. That would be a very short letter, right? What, what's he actually say here? He says, he says, here's who God is. God is a good, good father, and he has lavished his love upon us. He's called us children, and that's who you are now. You're a child of God right now. Not after the resurrection, not after you get your butt in the gear and, and start living perfectly. Right now you're a child of God, not because of what you do, but because of what he's done in you. Therefore, go live like this. Purify yourselves as he is pure. Notice our good works are not motivated by some identity that we can somehow get if we work hard enough. But the good work that God's called us to and is motivated by the new person who created us within his image. It's so important that we get this because if we don't, what we'll do is we'll move past the gospel to works-based Christianity that's defined by our plate spinning. And we'll wear ourselves out trying to prove ourselves to God and to ourselves and to everyone else. We'll get into that good day, bad day Christianity. You guys been there before? You know, you wake up in the morning and the coffee machine goes to that one perfect morning. It's the best coffee you ever had. And the birds are singing outside the window. And you go to drive to work, and it's like that scene from Bruce Almighty where all the cars part and you just drive straight down. And you get to work, you're like, oh, man, the favor of the Lord is upon me. <laughs> the blessing of the Lord maketh rich, right? And you're just like, oh, you quote scripture all day to people. And then the next day you wake up like 20 minutes late, and the coffee's bitter, and it's got <laughs> grounds in it. And this guy cuts you off on the way to work, and you're honking your horn, you give him the universal symbol for one god you know and <laughs> you get to work and you feel guilty and you're like oh man it's a bad day good day bad day christianity have you guys ever am i the only one that's been there before <laughs> the, go the gospel will free you from good day bad day christianity because according according to john we're already beloved children the truest thing about you here if you don't hear anything else today here it is the truest thing about you is that you are the beloved of God. 
There's nothing more true about him. And it's not because of anything he's done. It's because of what he's done for you. And what, what I'm trying to say is what we do flows from who we are, and that's what the enemy tries to attack. You guys remember the Garden of Eden? God, God in this story, creates everything good. He creates us as image bearers. Everything is provided for us. Every tree is good to eat except the one. And the serpent comes along and says what? If you eat of that tree, if you do something, then you will become like God. We're already like God. What's he saying? Subtext. God's holding out on you. No, God provided everything for us. And I know that because now it seems like every day of my life is sorting through all the wrong trees to try to find the one good tree. Right? That's what life is like now. But the oldest lie in the book is that, that your, your being, your person comes from your doing. That you can find salvation, that you can become like God, you can know good and evil for yourself by what you do. And that's when our world is bent backward. We believe the lie that our being comes through our doing instead of believing the truth. What truth? That, that, that you could receive. That God sent his son for you to live perfectly in your place to 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 die a death you deserve so that you you could he could call you his and give you a new identity and if you're in christ today that new identity is already yours you can't do anything to lose it you know my kids some days they're more like my kids than others and by that i mean some days they're more perfect like like me and some days they're more like their dad than others but guess what they're always my kids nothing can change that not their worst day i love them so much nothing's going to take my love from them nothing they could they could do the worst things in the human imagination possible and still my heart would be broken because i love them they're so loved okay so we got to keep going but what is what is this identity in christ let's go to point number two peter tells us here in verse nine but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So what's, what's Peter saying here? Peter's reminding the church of their identity before he exhorts them to do anything. He's going to. He's going to tell them to do some stuff. Like, look at verse 11. If you look at verse 11, he says, abstain from sinful desires. At the end of this passage, look at verse 12. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So that's how we're supposed to live. But he doesn't start there. He reminds them of their identity first. And what is that identity? Well, he says a a few things. And we're going to pull out five things. And many of you have heard this before. But I just want to point it out. Number one, you're a chosen people. Like Abraham was chosen out and his family was called holy to be a a family among the families of the earth to show them what God is like, right? You are a chosen people, your family. Your family that's called to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus Christ was the perfect example of this. I love watching Jesus' life, how he's just constantly inviting people in. The disciples were the misfits that didn't make the cut and, and he invited them to be his followers the leaders of his church. He's inviting people that other people would otherwise not fellowship with around the table. It's scandalous. He's inviting them into family. 
And Jesus is living in perfect relationship with his father. He, he says, I always do what my father tells me. He's, he's perfectly imaging his father. He's walking with God and loving him with everything and loving his family. I, I want to ask you a question. Um, what would our church look like? I want you to think about that. What would the church look like globally? It'd probably be a little bit better, right, if we really believe this, if we really live like we're a family. But how, think about how your daily life would change if you really believe this. Think about how our world would view the church if we really began to live like this was true. Remember Jesus said in John, he said, by this will all men know you're my disciples. By what? By your love for one another. If we really live like family, how would that change people's perception of the church? How would that change your daily life? I grew up in a uh, church culture where people called each other brother and sister so-and-so. You know, it's like, it's like, hey, how you doing, Brother Mike? Well, doing fine, Brother Vince. Bless you. Highly favored, brother. You know, <laughs> you pay lip service to the brother and sister reality, but oftentimes your heart can be very far from it. You can have very different feelings toward that person in your heart than you're actually living out, right? What's it look like to really live like family? Now, I want to dialogue about that for a second. This section is really going to be driven by dialogue. So let me ask you, what would be some differences? What might be some signs that we're living this out as a church, that we really believe we're family? Don't be shy. Vulnerability. Yeah. If you believe you're really with family, you feel comfortable in your own skin, right? Like, and maybe not all of our families are perfect, right? So maybe not at Christmas or, or around the Thanksgiving table, you don't maybe feel 100% free to share your political opinions. <laughs> maybe that's a bad idea. But what I'm saying is when you're around real family, healthy family, you're free to let your guard down, take the mask off and just be real. Because you know you're known as you are and loved as you are. Yeah, if we were family, we'd be vulnerable with each other. Be trusting. That's a hard thing to find these days. What else? Peter. Yeah, we'd be celebrating life together, right? Everything from cultural celebrations and big parties to birthdays and anniversaries and helping each other move and doing all kinds of stuff, celebrating 10-year anniversaries, right, Winnie? Yeah, yeah, all kinds of fun stuff. Like, I will say, like, I think I'm, I'm thankful. We, we're not perfect at this by any stretch, but I'm so thankful for our church because I feel like this is one area that we've, God's given us a lot of grace in. This church is very diverse, and yet we feel very much like family in so many ways. And there's still a lot of room for growth in it, but, man, praise God for the growth that he has given us really cool yeah keep going he says next a chosen people then he says a royal priesthood that's servants ministers of the gospel ministers of reconciliation you know the the word uh minister comes from the greek word diakonos do you guys know what that means to serve it's a servant so most in most oh (laughs) in most church culture church culture i grew up in it was like the ministers were the people who got saved you know, it's like I actually I, I would watch like the preachers, Eddie, you know, what I'm talking about here. Preachers preaching somebody run up with their hanky and like start polishing their shoe because they just hit that point. And it was like, "Woo, praise God, you know, and polish your shoe. <laughs> like, 
Nobody does that to my chucks here. I'm really sad about that. <laughs> Ministry means to serve. Jesus Christ is the perfect example of this. He says in Matthew, he says, I came not to be or to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And all throughout his life, we see him serving the neediest among them. At, at, at the, the Last Supper, he gets down on his hands and feet and he takes up a towel and washes his disciples' feet. And tells them that you're not above your master. If I, as your master, have washed your feet, wash at the feet one another. When we're not living like servants, we are missing out on a huge aspect of belief in the gospel for ourselves and a beautiful testimony of what the gospel is like to everybody else. Every time you live like a servant, you're showing people what Jesus is about. You're showing people the character of God. keep going there's a there's a nugget here i want to go into so bad but i'm not sure if we have time for it do it okay okay well i love this part in first peter 2 5 because he says you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house that's the temple right to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ so he says we're living stones being built into a spiritual house and in the old testament the priests would work and live in a temple and people came to the temple and brought sacrifices you know why because everybody every culture is temples right everybody knows that there's a gap between us and god and they said we need a place to go and bridge that gap and how was that gap bridged? It was bridged by temples and priests and sacrifices. Do you know what was so revolutionary about the early church? One of the things that was so revolutionary, the, the reason why the Romans called Christians atheists is because they said, like, you don't have a religion. Why? Because you guys don't have temples. You guys meet in homes. You guys, this is nuts. How do you guys keep, how, how do you reach God, right? And the Christians said, well, the chasm's gone. The distance is gone. Jesus is our ultimate temple. He's both God and human. He's bridged the gap. He's the ultimate priest. He gave the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. He paid for our sins. The chasm's gone. So what was so revolutionary about Christianity was it said two things at the same time. It says there are no more temples of stone. Right? We were just talking about this, John. There are no more temples of stone, no more priests, no more sacrifices. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about because we're a temple. God laid the cornerstone down, and he's building us up all together as living stones in his temple. That's what this whole chapter is really about that Peter's talking about. So let me ask you, how would your life change? How would our life change together if we really saw ourselves as a holy temple of God? A royal priesthood here to connect the world to God and bridge that gap. How would your life look like that? Throw out one or two things. Anybody? Mm. We pray for each other. And we be bold about it too, right? I love it when I, I, I have a prayer request and I talk to somebody and they're not, hey man, I'll be praying for you. But they're like, let's pray right now. I love that. And many of you guys do that, so thank you. If you don't do that yet, you can do it. You are a temple of God, right? What else? What else do we see different? We'd spend more time together because we're living stones built together. Yeah. What's that? We'd have more confidence in our calling. 
Yeah, so I, I feel like so many of us, we, we, we still have this separation between the professional ministers in our culture and what we're called to do. But the Bible proclaims the truth that, that the priesthood is for all believers, that we are all priests. This isn't something that professionals get paid to do. This is something where we're all full-time ministers and God reroutes our paychecks through different sources. What if you started viewing your life as a, as a, as a temple, a tabernacle, a place where God came down and connected with humankind? Three, a holy nation. This is a mission language. The Old Testament, Israel was called to be a holy nation among all the nations of the world to show them what God was like. They were literally sent out on mission. And, and that's exactly what we're called to be. We're called to be sent out on mission. In fact, the Great Commission is all about this. But the Great Commission isn't something you do in order to be a good Christian. You are a missionary. You're an ambassador. You're a representative of God. And therefore, every day gets to look like it. There's a big difference there. You see that? Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of this. He left his glory. He's born in a barn. He's born into a culture. He learns the language. He eats the food. He dances the jig. Guarantee it. Hopefully better than that. I don't know what that was, but. Jesus Christ, he comes into culture, into human history. He takes on flesh. And he lived a heaven-like life to show us what God's like. He lived and loved and served and he prayed and he lived and died and rose again for us. His life is a life of a missionary. Then Jesus died for you and me. Does God come and live through you? And you know what a full-time missionary does when they go to a new like foreign context, what their daily life is like? How many of you know full-time missionaries or you have a friend or somebody that is? Anybody? Yeah. Do they just go and just like get a job and work for money and never tell people about Jesus? <laughs> no, right? <laughs> You're like, what are we supporting right now? Missionaries go and they give everything for the gospel. And we see that over there in a foreign context. But I'll tell you what, man, America is increasingly post-Christian. And what we need is some people who take their calling as missionaries serious right here in their neighborhoods and their schools and their jobs. You are a missionary. Whether you look like it or not is a, is a, a matter of whether or not you believe what God says about you. Let's keep going. And people of his own possession. That's disciples. We're called to be disciples. We're apprentices who are increasingly learning to live more and more like God desires. We're image bearers. We're called to image him. And the way we image him is being shaped by who he is and what he says, what he's done, wrapping our entire life around the gospel. You are called to be a disciple. You're a disciple of something. Something's shaping your life. It's either the, the lie or the truth of who God is. What's shaping your life? This is an identity piece. You don't turn it on and off. You're not a disciple when you do your 10-minute Bible reading. No, you are. <laughs> Siri got convicted. That was awesome. <laughs> Siri was like, sorry. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> We're always disciples, not just when we do our Bible reading. 
And Jesus is a great example of this. He's a perfect, ultimate example of this because he perfectly images God. Colossians 1 says he's the image of the invisible God. His life was shaped by perfect obedience. He says in John 5, I only do what the Father wills. Imagine if you lived life that way. Imagine if you didn't just look at Jesus as your Savior, but also as your Lord. And you surrendered every aspect of your life. And you allowed his word to shape your life. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received of God, and you are not your own? You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. 1 Corinthians 6.19 What would change in your life if you really believed you were a disciple and began to live like a like if Jesus came walking through here right now and said, I want you to leave your life behind and follow me. Would you do it? What would you say? I can't do that. That's too hard. Those are the areas that you're struggling to trust him and be formed as a disciple in. Those are the areas, those are the idols, those are the things that get in the way of you fully living out your calling. Five, last one, proclaimers of his excellencies. You're worshipers. All of life is worship. You're always worshiping. We've talked about this over and over. If you're around here, if you've been here for more than a year, you're probably sick of hearing it, but I'm going to say it again because bears repeating, and we need to hear this stuff over and over. Where are you aiming your worship? Where are you looking for your hope? Where are you looking for your value? Where are you saying, if this happens, then all right, my life will have meaning and significance and value? You're worshiping something. Something sits on the throne of your heart. We are worshipers. Con- created continuously out from. We're setting value on Jesus. We're glorifying him. How much of that's gone to God? Jesus Christ did this perfect. He did not seek his own glory. It says in John eight fifty. He lived for his father. What would change in your life if everything you did, you did as worship to God? Let that sink in for a moment. Every moment. The way you worked at your job. The way you ate and drank and slept and celebrated. The the way you gave yourself away for another day. What, What would change in your life if you believed you were a worshiper and that you believed you were called to aim all that worship at him? Ultimately, How would that transform your marriage? How would that transform your schedule, your finances? How would that transform your health? How would that transform every aspect of your life? See, what we tend to do is we tend to say, the gospel is the best news ever for this tiny sliver of my life called eternal poverty. But when it comes to my finances and my family and my kids and all these other things, I apply either nothing, I say the gospel has nothing to say about that, or I apply a new law to it. And I say I need to do in order to be. What would happen if the gospel feeds you in all those areas to trust his will and to begin to live like it's true, that what he says of you is true? And the last question I, I want to ask you is this, before we go to the final point for today. If that's the church, if the church isn't called to be a building or, or a service on Sundays or an event on the calendar, 
Do you know what I mean? If the church is actually called to be a family of missionary servants making disciples of Jesus the gospel, how would that change your life? What if you just said, no, I am the church and that's what I want to do with my life? And Sunday is a great catalyst to take that. But Sunday's not the plan. Sunday's a boost, right, in the right direction to be sent out to live this out. That's why we do church the way we do here at Mission. And it's far from perfect. We don't have it figured out. But that's literally what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, what does the gospel say? How does the gospel redefine our very lives? And then how do we go into our lives with more faith and trust in the gospel together as gospel community at Mission? That is the whole point of why we do it this way. And it's a bit of an experiment, but it also seems like one of the most ancient ways of doing church in the New Testament. And that's what we're calling you into. And that's why we say, hey, we want members in these so we can be part of gospel communities on mission because we can't do this life alone as Lone Rangers. We need each other. We're family. And we're not just called to be served. We're called to serve together. We're called to celebrate together. We're called to live this gospel life out together. Point number three, how do we get the power for this? I'm going to read um, this precious cornerstone imagery we see in the Bible. Peter says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. He uses that term twice. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Man, if you want to live a life that never is going to be put to shame, put your trust in him. Now, you who believe, you who believe this stone is precious, he says. What's he talking about? You know, some of you guys are builders. You know how this works. In ancient cultures, you had a thing called a cornerstone. The cornerstone was the most important piece of the building because the cornerstone had to be perfect right angles. It couldn't have any cracks or imperfections in it because it set the tone for the entire building. It was the first block that went down. It set the tone for the whole foundation. And then all of the load bearing eventually like rested on that cornerstone. So the cornerstone was, was the most precious chiseled. It had to be strong. It had to be everything. And if you had the right cornerstone and if everything else lived in right relationship to that cornerstone, the whole building went up. So why is Jesus called a precious cornerstone? There's three reasons. First of all, because Jesus must be your cornerstone. He must be the foundation of your life. He talks about it in Matthew 7 and Luke 6 when he says, don't be like a man who builds his house on the shifting sand. Right? But be like a man who builds his house on me and my words, the rock, because when the storm comes and the winds come, if you're on the sand, you'll shake, you'll quake, and your life will fall apart. But if you're built on me, no matter what happens, you're unshakable. Listen to me. Any part of our life that isn't founded upon the gospel is sitting on shifting sand. It's shakable. I didn't ask my permission to say this, but I'm going to, and hopefully I'm not in the doghouse later. We, we have different parts of our life that are built on shifting sand from time to time. Like, for me, if anything goes wrong with the, the finances or business or anything, you ask her, I'm like, oh, it's okay, God will take care of it. I'm like just, that part of my life, I've seen God come through over and over. 
I'm just very like comfortable in that zone. If anything goes wrong with my kids, I don't need nail clippers because I bite them all, all the way down. <laughs> like anything, if my kids are sick, if they're like struggling in school, struggling to walk with God, having relational difficulties, that's like this relational stuff. I get all in knots. Why? Because every part of my life is so much to consume. And my wife is the opposite. I, I won't go into that. I don't want to shame her. But she like, she, she's amazing when it comes to her kids. She's like, hey, but maybe I, they've got a better father than me. He's perfect, you know. And <laughs> what parts of your life are not founded upon the gospel? You'll know because when life shakes, what's the part where you start biting your nails? We're never going to become unshakable rocks ourselves until the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation for all of our life. You're not going to live a holy life. You're not going to be able to share the gospel without fear. You're not going to be able to give away until it hurts. You're not going to be effective in people's lives. You're not going to be changing people's lives, not unless Jesus Christ is found there. Your life will be characterized by plate spinning. You'll be one degree off and out in the middle of God knows what. But if the gospel of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of your life, you will become unshakable. Anxiety will lose its hold on you. Depression will lose its grip on your soul. And you're not going to be consumed by your career or overwhelmed with worry. And you'll be free to give and love and serve and even go and follow Jesus wherever he leads you. You'll be free to see yourself as God sees you. Are we tracking? Two. This image gets across the fact that Jesus Christ must be precious to you. He uses the word precious two times in this text. The best way I can get it across is with chocolate. We're about to go back to Ecuador, and I'm excited about the mission, but I'm also very excited about the chocolate. <laughs> right, and we'll, we'll talk more about that next service. But here's the deal. When you've been down in the Amazon, and you've had chocolate straight from the straight from the thing and then you walk to the place where it's fermenting and you and you taste real chocolate and then you come back and you have halloween candy <laughs> it's it's akin to sex <laughs> like what the heck this isn't chocolate this is like wax what what am i eating right when you come into the presence of superlatives all the things that used to have a hold of your heart lose their grip Nothing else charms you. All the vain things that charmed me once and controlled me, I find them to be worthless. If it's not enough for Jesus to be somebody you just believe in, he must become precious to you. Taste and see that the Lord is God. If you're just showing up to church, if you're just like kind of going through the motions, I want to challenge you today to take a bite, to enjoy the life of Christ given for you, to actually give him a chance. Let him be precious to you. Is he ravishing to you? Is he so beautiful, so fetching, so endearing to you? Listen, that's, that's why we're shakable. That's why we're not rocks ourselves, because we're not in right relationship with Jesus. He's not the foundation of our life, and, and we're too anxious, or we're too self-absorbed to be any good to anybody else. No wonder we're not out changing the world. We can barely get past our own stuff, because our lives aren't firmly rested on the foundation of Jesus. He's not precious to us. Well, how does he become precious? How does he become that? This way. The text says he was rejected. The stone the builders rejected. Now, who are the builders? 
quote, to the religious leaders, right? But Peter is saying what Mike just said. Because if you really understand what Peter's saying, when Peter quotes this, I want you to know that Peter was not just thinking about the fact that the religious leaders rejected Christ and put him on the cross. And I'll tell you why I know. You know what Peter's name means? The Rock. Not Dwayne Johnson. Jesus called him that, remember? His name is Simon, and Jesus said, no, you're Peter, and upon this rock, I'll build my church. Jesus gave him this new identity, this new name, and yet, when the big storm came, when Jesus was arrested, when anybody who stood with Jesus would have been arrested and suffered a similar fate, the rock wasn't very rock. He crumbled, fell apart, he chickened out, and three times he said, I don't know him. I don't know him. resurrection on the beach in John 21 Jesus meets Peter and three times he asks him do you love me Peter do you love me do you love me Peter who's this Peter who am I what's he doing there he's walking him back along that same trajectory and reminding him <laughs> he's saying Peter you didn't lose everything just because you had a bad day. I gave you that. Your worst day's not my worst day. And I'm calling you back in the ministry. Do you love me? And I can imagine Peter thinking, why me? I'm the biggest failure. I haven't lived up to my name. I'm, I'm not a rock. I'm quicksand. I'm nothing. How could you make me a minister of the gospel? How could you ask me to take the gospel into people's lives? And you know, you know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, Peter, don't you understand that nothing makes you better equipped for ministry? Nothing makes you more effective at changing people's lives than your failures plunged in Christ. The bigger the failure, the more you see your own inability, the more you experience gospel's wounds, the more you're going to be able to help other people change, the more sensitive you're going to be, the more merciful you're going to be, the more kind you're going to be, the more you're going to be able to care for others, the more you're going to be able to free, freely share the good news to everyone else, the more you're going to be able to live out your identity in the gospel. You don't have to be strong and unshakable rocks in yourselves. You have to rest on the one who is. Jesus says to Peter, you, you failed me more than any of the other disciples, and that's why I'm making you the chief rock. And I can relate to Peter. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but um, I sinned. And I know that you're surprised by that, because Pastor Tim sinned. But I do. And you know what I find every time I experience repentance and restoration? is that God has a way of taking those broken parts of my life and doing something far more beautiful with them. You don't have to hide your past and your sin and all those things that used to define you and, and hide them way back, sweep them under that rug and hope nobody ever sees them. God wants to work through your feelings of inhumanity, just like he did with Peter. There it is. Look, look at Christ being rejected himself 
you won't ever be afraid of being rejected again. Look at him dying on the cross for you, seeing you, seeing you as so precious that he was willing to spend exhausted riches of heaven Looking at him on the cross, and that will make him, that will make him your foundation. That will make you an unshakable rock. That will make even your failures ways of becoming better at taking the gospel into other people's lives. That'll, that'll free you to live more like a family of missionary children who make disciples of the gospel. The world, your friends, your classmates, your neighbors, your kids, they're waiting for you to believe that you are who God says you are. Will you take that step of faith? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us this great identity. It's an identity that didn't come cheap to you. It was free for us. We, we cost you the life's blood of our Savior. And thank you for this profound reminder that who we are is determined by, by whose we are. We're yours. Nothing else in the world speaks to you. Nothing else defines our identity. Not the words spoken over us in our past of people who will often hurt us, hurt us and make themselves feel better about themselves. Not the, not the X on our report card. Not the times we lost our job. Nothing in our past is, is the defining defining thing for us, not our trophies, not the A's on our report card, not the, the amount in our bank account. You, your love, that's defined by who we are. You've called us to live out of that profound truth instead of seeking to, to build our lives on the shifting sands of, of culture and others' opinions and successes and failures and our love life being good or bad, and the roller coasters of our parenting or our perfection. I pray you let your truth set us free. Holy Spirit, right now I pray, free from the lies that bind us up. Help us to trust what you say of us. Help us to build our lives upon the foundation of the gospel, piece by piece. To rest on you as our cornerstone, as the foundation of a precious gift. And to find ourselves being built up together with these other people in this room into the house of God, a temple, a place where people can come and find rest for their souls. Our marriages can come and be healed. Lord, I pray that you would do that work. We can't do it on our own. We're not even, we're not even called to. We're called to trust you and walk arm in arm with you and, and follow you day by day into the next thing that you're leading us into. Give us ears to hear you, Holy Spirit, as you lead this journey for each of us individually, for us as families, for us as home groups, city in the middle of this giant city of San Diego. And we ask now, as we meet at your table, you'd make yourself real to us, Lord, so that we might be empowered to be who you've called us to be. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.